Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the earth, the spirit who is now working in those who are disobedient. All of us used to live among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature the serving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in, it, in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This is God's word, you may be seated. You know you're getting old when you you see an old friend and you don't recognize them, even when they're sitting in the pew next to you. <laughs> Happened uh, to me this morning. Uh, <laughs> saw the family come down and say, "Oh, great! You know, uh, uh, visitors. That's that's a wonderful thing." I sat down beside them and asked, uh, you know, shook hands and everything, and uh, you know, how you doing? Uh, asked something about Sparks, answered Sparks, and I said. Uh, is this your first time here at Mac? And he goes, Mark, it's me, Mike Roberts. And many of you know Mike. Uh, uh, spent a lot of his uh, growing up time kind of in and out of Mac in a, a, a church church up the road a little bit. And the last couple of years has, has been in Alabama and uh, in the military. And they and he and his family have just moved to San Antonio. And uh, what is it, December, July, July next year, they're going to be set up here, but in July, he's going to be deployed somewhere into the Middle East, and so they come back here, and uh, we're really thankful for them. We want to say thank you for what you do. That's, uh, that's a great thing, and I know it's a burden sometimes on the family, and, uh, but we want you to know that we're going to be praying, and we will help wherever we can during this period of time. And, you know, this is not the only family. We have others that have just recently deployed. Uh, a lot of these, these young folk, they have a lot of kids. And it's really, really important that we keep our eyes on them and, uh, and pray for them and do what we can to minister to them. Now, we are going to look at the Word of God, and we're going to pray that God bless us. Let's bow our head and join our hearts and ask God to give us the eyes that see and ears that hear in order to discern His Word that's been read to us. Father, we are, are blessed to sing. We are blessed to sing, Father, and, and with beautiful voices and, and voices that can carry a tune and, and those that not so much. We're, we're able, Father, to express beyond just our words how we feel about you and what we think about you. And we're grateful for that, Father. It, it's important for us to do that, to center you at the core of our, of our lives. 
But it's also important, Father, for you to speak to us. You're the voice that we yearn to listen to. And so we do ask you to give us those ears that hear your word as it's delivered to us through your spirit and to discern it, Father, in such a way that it changes us and transforms us into people that are light and who are salt and who do good works and and praise you and are people who are of love and of kindness and gentleness as we walk through this world, Father, all of that reflecting your grace and gospel in our lives. To this end, Father, we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. It's a book published last year, 2015, called Good Faith. The researchers behind it, uh, David Kinnaman and Gabe Lyons, uh, discerned what they considered to be the six major points of the new American morality. Now, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to read off these six to you. They'll be up here on the screen in case you want to, want to jot them down. But they are the six uh, ways that they have discerned the, the new American morality today. First, people should not criticize someone else's lifestyle choices. Now, you know, a majority of the people obviously believe that. 76% of of practicing Christians agree. Number two, to be fulfilled in life, you should pursue the things you desire most. 72% of practicing Christians agreed with that. The highest goal in all of life is to enjoy it as much as possible. That is, have a great time. That being the highest goal in life, 66% of practicing Christians agreed with that. Next, people can believe whatever they want as long as those beliefs don't affect society. 61% practicing Christians agreed. Any kind of sexual expression between two consenting adults is acceptable. 40% of practicing Christians agreed. And then finally, number six, the best way to find yourself is to look within yourself. The best way to find yourself is to look within yourself. 91% of U.S. adults believe that's true. 76% of practicing Christians agree. When, when I hear that, I always think of this thing I heard to, uh, Tony Campalo say uh, back in the, the 1980s. Campalo said, you know, it was, it was this American phenomenon back in the 60s and the 70s that you had to find yourself. And there were lots of young people that were leaving home and they were in pursuit of finding themselves and discovering who they are. And Campalo said the funniest thing about it is they were all going to California as if the self was better discerned in California. And so everybody laughed about that. Yeah, yeah we, we, we get what you're saying. And then Tony said something really profound. He said, what if a human being is an onion? And as you begin to pull back all of those layers to get to the core, like an onion, a human being with all of those layers peeled back discovers that he's nothing. And Kampala said, maybe... The human being, the self, is something that is created and not discovered. Big question in our culture for a lot of decades now is this. Who in the world are you? Who are you? Does being a human being mean that you make it up as you go along? That to be a human being means that you you just kind of follow the stream of consciousness, that you make it up sort of in a comfortable way as you go along. Question is, you know, that's what a lot of folk believe, but does it work? 
I think the evidence would say that it doesn't. That the answer is no. Human beings need a better story than secularism. Even the secularists are beginning to get that. But my question this morning is, if that's true, it doesn't work, then why are more people not receptive to the gospel? Here's something to consider. This goes all the way back to uh, the 19th century. A fellow by the name of Chesterton, G.K. Chesterton. In fact, if many of you write the, uh, watch on PBS the Father Brown series, this is the author. Very devout Christian, very profound Christian thinker. Chesterton, in his book Orthodoxy, says, Consider this, that there is only one unanswerable argument against Christianity. Christians. Now, to be fair, Chesterton is calling out miserable, judgmental, and dour saints. And I mean, who doesn't know what he means? But I would also argue, if Chesterton were standing here today, I would, I, I would, I would concede, yes, your, part of your point is correct. But I would also argue the opposite. That Christians can be the best argument for the gospel. I mean, when you get right down to it, when you, when, when you see somebody whose faith is profound, and regardless of what might be happening in, around them in life or even in their life, they don't seem to be buffeted or torn up. They're not, you know, at the end of the day, dropping down in the driveway in the fetal position, position and just weeping. When you see somebody like that, it gets you, gets your attention. It gets you by the heart. There's something profound about that kind of an individual who is solid and a person who is loving and kind and the environment around them is not the, the, the thing that changes how they treat other people or what they believe or how they respond to certain kinds of situations that arise in life. You know, the one thing that you can't ever argue with is a changed life. Debate it as much as you want, the, 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 the philosophies that are up there in the stratosphere, the one thing that you can never debate or challenge is a changed life. A changed life. You and me, in a manner of speaking, are a showroom. Hey, what's, the, what, what's in between you driving your old car and you driving your new car? Besides debt <laughs> what's in between you driving your old beater car and driving your new car the showroom it's the showroom in that showroom you get to see what is possible i mean I, there was one time when uh, i was i was driving an old truck and uh, I, I, there was a faint memory of when I lived at home of air conditioning. And I was driving this old, old Ford pickup. Some of you guys are Ford guys. You know what I'm talking about. Black vinyl seats. You're living in out, out in West Texas. No power steering. No air conditioning. No radio. No automatic windows. There was a day when you had to do this to get a window down and do this to get a window up. And air conditioning was sort of this distant memory. And then I got married to Ellen, who likes air conditioning. And we went to a showroom and saw what was possible. You see beauty in the showroom. 
You see colors and you see shape. You see leather trim. You see heat warm, seat warmers. You see what is possible and you ask questions in that showroom. Hey, how many miles uh, to the gallon does that thing get? You ask questions like, what's the horsepower? How many carburetors like we would know today? You know, how, many, how, how much horsepower does this puppy have? And yes, you get to see the price tag. But it's the showroom where all of that convincing takes place. And that, my friends, is why discipleship is so, so, so important. That's why discipleship, looking like Jesus wherever we go, 1 John chapter 2, verse 6, if we say that we are in Him, we walk as He walked. That's why it's so important. Look at this up here on the screen. Your life becomes a showroom for the gospel by the way you live and speak the truth of the kingdom of God. Now that's Scripture. 1 Peter chapter 3, in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. That means sanctify. That means set Him apart. Make Him special. Make Him the most special part of the core of your being. In your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Why do you have a hope? It's because Christ is at the center of all things. Why would they even know to ask you about that hope unless they see it in you? And you know how they see it in you? If you were talking to Peter, he would say, it, it's best seen in the way that you suffer. But you think about our culture, we don't have to suffer all that much like they do in other cultures. I'm not saying that we don't suffer, we do. But sometimes the way that we use our money, the way that we use our resources, the way that we, we treat people in relationships, the way that we are, are uh, self-controlled, the way that we're kind, the way that we're generous, the, all of the, the, way, the way that we're forgiving are ways that people see the hope in us. People who are not very forgiving are people who don't really understand the hope of their own forgiveness, what the, their forgiveness in terms of hope really means. But when you find somebody that does a really good job of forgiving, and I'm not talking about somebody that says, right, well, you know what, hey, like bygones be bygones, because forgiveness is not sweeping it up under the rug. When you forgive, it's releasing, not just hiding or denying that it exists. But it's self-control, generosity, kindness, faithfulness, love, joy, peace that passes. When people see that in our culture, they, I, don't, I don't know why this person doesn't gossip the way that, and they may not use the word gossip. But, you know, in 35 years of ministry, I've never had anybody come into my office and say, you know what, preacher, I've got a problem with greed. I'm greedy. I'm, I'm materialistic. Nor have I ever had them come in and say, you know what, I'm a gossip. But we know when we're around people that, that protect other people's reputations in their being, right? And when we're looking at somebody and going, oh man, you know, this person is not really somebody I want to hang out, and yet we see somebody being kind and gentle and generous with that person, it gets our attention. And that's why we're a showroom. A showroom of the gospel where people can come and ask the questions that make that make that make the, the, the purchase or the, the, them being purchased by the blood of Jesus. So two things about the showroom I want you to remember this morning. Number one, you really have to know why you're here. 
You really have to know why you're here. This is a, a, a hugely important question. Why do, why do I exist? Why do you exist? Why does anybody exist at all? What was God's intention when he created Adam and Eve? Human beings are recipients of God's love. We are not accidents of a thoughtless and empty and, and cold universe. God created us to love us, to be recipients of his love. You know, Ellen and I got married uh, 34 years ago because we loved each other and because we were dedicated to each other. And, and, and as uh, our, our, our love grew for one another and, and that harmony and that partnership and that, that, you know, all of that intimacy began to grow and, and we began to, you know, that love began to blossom, there came a point where we wanted children. It was like this natural expression of the love that she and I uh, shared with one another that we began to, to yearn to have children. And you know why we wanted children? It wasn't because we wanted more tax write-offs. In our love, we wanted to create something that we could love. We wanted children to share that love. And that, you know, that is the natural progression of, of a deep love. It is to create. It is, it, it's to build. You, you yearn to love a child. And after uh, nine months of pregnancy, there's this, this beautiful little baby that I, j j just captured me. My daughter Jessica, born Southern California. And I, I love that kid. I, I mean, I just hooked from that point on, just, just hooked. But here was the thing about Jessica. She was this beautiful little baby. She was a perfect baby in so many ways, but she could not love me back. I was, I was just the big guy that showed up. She couldn't you know, love Ellen or me back when she was born. Her universe began with when's the next diaper change and when is the next bottle? That was, that was her, her world. But then the day came, and you could see it in her eyes, when she could reciprocate that love. And there was just a different way that she looked at me, and a different way that she, she looked at Ellen. And I can remember those days of just, just coming home from the office and, and uh, opening up that door, and all of a sudden, boom, you know, there's this, this kid holding onto me, and I'm walking around like this. You know, all around the house, into the bedroom, even to, you know, to start getting changed, and there's this kid hanging on my leg. Beautiful. And then we're living down in Brazil, and, you know, that love is just, it's just not finite. It's infinite. And we begin to yearn for, for another child. And here comes Jordan, and this is kind of the same story and the same kind of thing. And then finally, you know, I come in, you know, to the apartment down there in Brazil, and boom, I got one on one leg and one on the other leg, and I'm, I'm walking like Frankenstein through the house trying not to hurt anybody. But you, you, get, you, you get what that's all about, right? And now my daughter Jessica and her husband James, they have their own baby, Blair going through the same thing. And one of the incredible things that happens when your child brings a grandchild into your life is that not only is that grandchild beautiful, 
But my son-in-law, James, now understands how much Robert and Terry, his mom and dad, loved him. And my daughter, Jessica, understands as she and you know, James are taking care of this baby, how much Ellen and I love her. And that, that's one of the beautiful things about that love when it's proper and it's right and it's healthy. We experience the greatness of a love that just cannot be contained. And that's why, you know, that's why, you know, we need to get it straight when it comes to worship and loving God. That God doesn't have this black hole in his heart that needs to be filled up with masses, massive doses of love. And that's why he created us. He wanted to kind of, you know, create his own posse, his own entourage of people that are always going, yeah, you can do no wrong, you can do no wrong, you can do no wrong. That's not why we were created. The love of God the Father, the love of God the Son, the love of God the Spirit is so great that it can't help but create and expand and fill in the space. And that is what is so special about human beings. God creates all of the animals. They are loved by God. And they're beautiful. But they can't fully comprehend and reciprocate. Only humans can do that. And that's why we find in the Bible verses like Psalm 18, verse 1, where David says, I love you, Lord, my strength. And that's why people, not just in our age, but in all of the ages in which people have recognized the presence of God, they say things like, even in the worst of moments, the steadfast love of God never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. Or Psalm 26, I have always been mindful of your unfailing love and have lived in reliance on your faithfulness. God created you in order for you to be a recipient of his love. And as a recipient of that love, it changes you. And, and, and we get that as well. I mean, you know, I've told you this before. I mean, this is old ground. Uh, we don't need to plow this again. But you guys remember me telling you, you know, the, the, the um, you know, I was, I was such a slob. I mean, you know, just utterly disordered <laughs> in my personality when it came to organization of dirty clothes. I felt that the entire house was my filing system. And, and you know, Ellen, Ellen could have, you know, and, and, she, and she did at times, say, how come you can't move this just five feet over into that and I don't have to see it? And she could say it and say it and say it and say it until, you know, until she turned blue in the face. But until I wanted to change, I would, no, nothing was going to change. But what was it that changed me? The fact that she said it a billion and one times rather than just a billion times? Just that one kind of was a tipping point? No. It's the way it always happens in a good marriage is that all of a sudden you realize that somebody loves you so profoundly and you see that love in such a profound way, in a way that you've never seen it before, that it just it melts you, it changes you, it transforms you. It, it, it causes you to repent. You want to live a life that's worthy of that love. And that's why 
you make the bed and that's why you put the dishes in the dishwasher and you because of that kind of love you're changed you want to be a better person because of that love and that leads to the second thing you know the people that understand fully and come to grips with it i know it's kind of a dynamic thing ins and outs because someday we feel really close to god and there are days that you have and i and i get these too don't don't feel like this is you know i'm up here and I don't ever get a case of the ordinaries. Man, I do. Sometimes there's a Sunday morning that wakes up and I go, what in the world? I, you know, case of the ordinaries. But when we really get it and we begin to change, one of the things, and this is the second thing, when we begin to realize why we're here and that's to be a recipient of God's love, then the second thing we do is we begin to cultivate the earth with the love of God. In creation, God tells Adam and Eve that they are to have dominion over the earth. And they are to what? Subdue it. It's kind of strange language for us. Subdue kind of carries these negative connotations. As if the earth is a bad place that needs to be wrestled, kind of, you know, a chokehold, wrestle the, the evil earth into submission. No, the earth is good. God says it's tov in Hebrew, which means that it is the perfect, perfect replica, replication of what it is that he has in his mind. It's perfect. It, it's tov, which means that it's fertile and it's bountiful and it's rich. And Adam and Eve are to bring God's purposes into this super productive earth. But then you know as well as I do, I mean, we don't even get two chapters into the Bible before it becomes unraveled you got genesis chapter 3 the fall of humanity brought about the reversal of all of that fertility and 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 greatness productivity of the earth now it's described as thorns and thistles it's thorns and thistles i mean the 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 earth is bountiful but now how are we going to get our food it's through the sweat of labor and even one of the most dynamic ways in which uh, uh, creation happens today in procreation it's not going to happen without pain but as humans are saved through the love of God they begin to sow back that love into creation and this is how God works a lot of times through our good works Matthew chapter 5 he says Jesus saying to us, you want to be my disciple and understand this, you're like light in a dark world. You're like the city set on a hill with all of these lights that cannot be hidden. Think about it this way. Your life should be so bright that no one should be able to put a, a lampshade over the top of it or cover it up with a bowl. Instead, instead what people do is they're drawn to the light and they want to put the light in a prominent place. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your what? Good deeds. In such a way that you don't get the thanks, but God gets the praise. And when we shine, people see the greatness of God. They see the God who changed us. They don't just see a nice person who's nice perhaps in this one area of life but they see a disciple of Jesus who in every area of their life are learning to walk as he walked. We speak up, we bind up, we lift up. The parable of the sheep and goats in Matthew 25 is an illustration that what we do in this life it matters much, extremely important. 
Paul in the text that was read to us by Arturo at the beginning of the sermon, the last verse, we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. In your Bible, circle that word handiwork. It's actually the word poema, which sounds like the English word poem. Handiwork is uh, uh, really the word in, in, in Greek, poema, which is, which is the word for poem. You ever, you ever thought about a poem? I mean, what is a poem? I mean, when you, when you think about all of the writings from law books to insurance policies to love letters, they all use words. So what is a poem? Poems use words in such a way to make truth beautiful and inspirational and unforgettable. Poems are like that. You know, I th- Ulysses by Alfred Lord Tennyson. Though much is taken, much abides. Though we are not now that strength which in old days moved earth and heaven, that which we are, we are. One equal temper of heroic hearts, made weak by time and fate, but strong in will to strive, to seek, to find and not to yield. Poems stir us and make us think and inspire us. One of the things that Michelangelo said that has always stuck with me, he said, you know, I never criticize. You know how I criticize? I criticize by creating something beautiful. You know, quite frankly, you don't really have to get into a lot of debates and critique everybody's lifestyle and tell them where they're wrong when you are busy creating a beautiful life that by itself stands alone like like a light, like a city on a hill. Now, there is a place to speak, but there's a place to be where people can observe your life and see that you're a showroom. And I can think of no greater purpose than to be neck deep in the stream of God's will for your life. And, you know, it was said of of David in Acts chapter 13, after he had fulfilled God's purposes for his life, then he went to sleep. I mean, do you want to keep living after your purpose is gone? You know the name George Bernard Shaw, famous playwright, critic, and different things. Great writer. He's really famous for, one of my favorite quotes is, those uh, who, who, um, who say that it cannot be done should stay out of the way of those who are doing it. That's one of my favorite quotes. But he also has, in, uh, in this dedication to his work known as Man and Superman, he has this that I want to end with this morning. He says, this is true joy in life, the being used for a purpose recognized by yourself as a mighty one the being thoroughly worn out before you are thrown out on the scrap heap the being a force of nature instead of a feverish selfish little clod of ailments and grievances complaining that the world will not devote itself to making you happy end of quote we're not clods We're not these feverish little clods of of ailments and grievances complaining that the world is not making us happy. There's something better than that. That is a joy that comes from being filled with the love of God, 
and knowing that regardless of how how difficult this life can be and, and the life is never going to be easy in this world but to know that there's a peace that passes understanding there's an inexpressible joy there's a, a transformation that takes place in our life that is that is wrought in our lives by the by the gospel of god and that as we grow in our understanding then it becomes fulfilled in purposes that that in the ways that we our lives are used by god like showrooms where people can see what god is really like when he gets inside of a human life and begins to to to, to redo it from the inside out. What a righteous person really looks like. What a disciple of Jesus really looks like when the fruit of the Spirit begins to blossom in that person's life. It's time for us to, to, to praise God right now. We're going to sing a song. Ben's going to lead us in that song. And maybe there's some ways that we can help you discover what it is that the gospel really does by sitting down and just showing you in Scripture you know, through this next week of what it, what it means to be a disciple of Jesus and, and what it means to be a recipient of God's love and what it means to have your sins forgiven, not just for today, but forever and ever and ever, and what it means to live a life as a disciple as you are being transformed into the likeness of the perfect man, Jesus. Or if there's some other things on your heart, we're going to have some of our shepherds down here at the front. Come down and share these things with them as we stand and praise God together. I know not why God's wondrous grace to me.